3: Welcome to Exposure. And tonight I am your host, Andre Matus. Tonight we have really good stuff coming up this hour. We'll sit down with Benjamin Hall and talk about the Summer Solstice Jazz Fest coming to East Lansing. Then I sit down with Michigan author Bonnie Jo Campbell, who is on a book tour celebrating the UP. Then you'll hear from Derek Blaylock. He is on a 6,500 mile bike ride in support of charity, followed by a story from reporter Dana Roselle on a clock repair shop in Traverse City. And after that, we sit down with another author on the book tour. Her name is Sharmie K. and she is a Michigan poet. And After that, we end up our show with a Michigan storyteller's piece from Kadri Wilkman. But first, here's your weekly update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News.
4: Exposure will start in just a moment, but first, here's your weekly news update. Hundreds of people are missing after a cruise ship capsized in China's Yangtze River early Tuesday morning. Five have been announced dead after their bodies were found and identified by officials. The ship was traveling down China's third longest river. According to NBC News, the captain and the chief engineer of the ship were rescued and stated that the ship ran into difficulty after being caught in a cyclone. More than 50 boats and 3,000 people have been involved in their search and rescue efforts as the search continues to save lives. Now, Ryan Smith reports on the reinstatement of the Patriot Act.
1: Today, the United States Senate voted to renew parts of the U.S. Patriot Act. The previous version gave the NSA the ability to tap into citizens' private phone records without warrant. The bill created by the House and approved by the Senate is a first step to rein in the government's surveillance power. Previously, the NSA would initially store any desired phone records. Now, they are stored by the private phone companies themselves. To access these records, the NSA is now required to obtain a warrant from the secret Foreign Intelligence Court. The bill will take one full year to be phased in once it is signed by the president. With National News, I'm Ryan Smith.
4: Next, we go to Nina Rao with the most recent edition of Vanity Fair. Speaking publicly for the first time, Caitlyn, with a C, Jenner compared herself on a two-day emotional cover shoot for Vanity Fair magazine to winning the gold medal at the 1976 Olympics. She says that was a good day, but the last couple of days were better. This shoot was about my life and who I am as a person. Jenner reveals that she underwent several panic attacks while going through the process, but was worth it in the end. Buzz Bissinger, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning Vanity Fair contributing editor, had the chance to spend time with Bruce and Caitlin, respectively, and eventually interviewed the cover model for this issue. Caitlin concluded that with Bruce, lies were always told, but now Caitlin is free and finally doesn't have any lies or secrets to keep anymore. With your entertainment news, I'm Nina Rao. And lastly, in local news, the Dutch king and queen landed in Grand Rapids earlier this morning, making them the first Dutch monarchs to visit West Michigan in 30 years. The Dutch royals were greeted by Governor Snyder and a Dutch song by 6th graders from a local elementary school. King William Alexander and Queen Maxima are visiting the United States to mark the bicentennial of the monarchy in the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Holland from Nazi Germany. Michigan has the highest population of Dutch Americans in the United States, and the King and Queen plan to meet with prominent Dutch American families while visiting West Michigan. This has been your news update. I've been your anchor, Michaela Harris, and now back to Exposure.
3: Now I sit down with Benjamin Hall to talk about the Summer Solstice Jazz Festival, as well as the influence of jazz on modern music. I'm with Benjamin Hall today. He's sitting down with me to discuss the 2015 Summer Solstice Jazz Festival it's a two-day jazz festival that comes to East Lansing. Thank you for coming in, Ben. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with um, how long has the jazz fest been coming to East Lansing?
5: This will be the 19th year, and it began, well, 19 years ago um, on campus at uh, Erickson Kiva. It was supposed to go all night long, beginning at, uh, I think, approximately 7 p.m. and going till 4 in the morning. And that was to reflect the traditions of the summer solstice um, in Europe.
3: Okay, and then how does summer solstice and jazz kind of meet and make sense for this like event? Like, how's like the name kind of come together?
5: Well, um, our founder, uh, former MSU professor, uh, Al Cafania, it was it, it was all his his dream. So, um, since it's a summer solstice jazz festival, it takes place as close to the solstice as we can get, the, you know, that weekend. And um, we don't go in all night anymore, but we do take advantage of the, hopefully. Fourteen hours of sunshine that we'll get. that Right,
3: one. fingers crossed. And um, maybe you could like talk a little bit about the lineup. What kind of performers can we expect? Are they all local artists?
5: Well, we um we have a lot of uh, a lot of local talent as well as regional talent and uh, national and, and international talent as well. So we uh, locally we bring in um, let's see, the Metro Jazz Voices from Detroit. We've got uh, orchestra Ritmo uh, Salsa Band. Um, Ari uh, Tidal, who's actually an MSU Jazz Studies student, he'll be performing as well. Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, we also got a couple of blues bands. Um, we've got uh, a headliner that's a young lady, a singer and trumpet player that's turning a lot of heads in New York City named Bria Sconberg. Right. Um, also, the MSU professors of jazz are usually always represented. Uh, so Rodney Whitaker will be playing with his current uh, incarnation, the, the Solar Energy. As well as uh, ATN Charles will be performing too.
3: Awesome. So, out of those artists, do you have one that you're particularly excited to showcase in this festival? Maybe you could like, give a little bio on them. Well, um,
5: there's a few. Actually. Okay, sure. I'll, I'll I'll break it down maybe by night. Um, Friday night, um, you know, as I had mentioned, uh, Rodney Whitaker's current uh, album is getting you know, rave reviews, and he's going to be playing with with his group, as well as. Uh, Bria Skonberg's playing that night as well. And Ending the Night is kind of an intimate uh, affair at Pepino's with Etienne Charles. And I don't know if you've ever heard Mr. Charles before, but he's from, uh, from the West Indies. Okay. He very much uh, brings that uh, flavor and that um, feel to his music. You know, very island feel as well as kind of a, uh, you know, Creole feel. mm mm-hmm. um, And also closing the education stage that night, we've got um, Thornetta Davis we attempted to have her last year. She's, uh, you know, Detroit's, um, what does she, she call herself? Detroit's rock and blues diva. And we attempted to have her last year, and she got rained out. But this year, we got a tent, and we're not messing around. And,
3: awesome. And then on
5: Saturday, Saturday, there's a lot going on. Uh, we've got um, Jason Adeshevitz, who's a uh, avant-garde uh, jazz vibraphone player who plays the vibes with some crazy rock and roll intensity. I've never seen anybody play the instrument like that before. He's going to open things up at 1 o'clock at the Broad in the Sculpture Garden. And then we've got uh, a group of young people from New Orleans called the New Orleans Swamp Doggies that are going to lead a traditional New Orleans-style second-line parade through the Broad up uh, Grand River to M.A.C., I mean, down M.A.C. to the Ant Street Plaza. Um, also on that day, we've got uh, Jeff Hamilton, who is, uh, you know, he's a, he's a drummer. He's played with all sorts of big names, you know, and has led a couple, you know, huge... Groups as well. Um, he's going to be kind of the big act on on uh, on Saturday, as well as uh, the Lansing Symphony Jazz Orchestra has a big band that they, they um, you know about 20 members and they you know have a very very huge sound. They'll be playing on Saturday. Um, Reed Mo, as I mentioned, the we have a guitar summit that's kind of it is um, hosted by our uh, MSU professor of jazz, Randy Napoleon, and he's bringing in two of probably the biggest names uh of guitar players in in uh jazz in the world and uh, you know it's very exciting mm-hmm. and we've got chris kanis band um is going to be closing things on the ed stage and they just won the detroit breakdown they uh represented uh the motor city in memphis and uh in an international blues competition and they came in i think 25th place which is still pretty huge because mm-hmm. there's fans from all over the world that compete there so and yeah, we're uh, welcoming them as well as uh, a lady from New Orleans named City Scott. She's got a fantastic voice. And just to rewind a little bit, we're doing something brand new this year, um, a fundraiser with a local favorite named Boogie Bob Baldori. And he's going to be playing uh, for a fundraiser at uh, the School of Music in Cook Recital Hall. And he uh, he does a dueling piano show with a guy named... Arthur Migliaza. We call it American piano music, but it's going—it's going to be, you know, quite an affair.
3: I think I went to school with his daughter. I think his daughter goes to Oakmont. So that's very cool. Boogie yeah. Bob, awesome. So, I cons- would you consider yourself kind of a jazz expert, or at least enthusiast? Enthusiast. I wouldn't <laughs>
5: say expert. I mean, I still, you know, yeah, have a couple more years before I can claim. Anything. <laughs>
3: Um, how would you think that jazz has influenced modern-day music? Here we pretty much putting newer artists that are coming out. How would you say that you see that jazz is heavily influencing or maybe lightly influencing these artists?
5: I'm going to go on record here saying this, that all American music, including jazz, stems from the blues, which stems from you know um, African traditional music. Um, kind of uh, in New Orleans and other areas where um, – were kind of the hotbed for for the development of American music, you know. You had the uh, traditional um, sounds of uh, French folk music kind of mixed in with a little bit of the uh, you know African spirituals and such, and uh, call and response kind of things. And then also you had some Western influence there, so um, kind of blues mixed with uh, with that influence kind of uh, formed. Um, the beginnings of jazz and people like Jelly Roll Morton and, and Louis Armstrong and uh, King Creel kind of, you know, it was born sort of in the in the brothels of Storyville in, in New Orleans, which is a section where, you know, that's kind of where um, um, Louis Armstrong got his start, but okay. that music, you know, um, turned into big band, big band turned into um, swing, swing turned into rock and roll eventually, and I mean, it all, you know, it's all American music, and mm-hmm. it's just you know, evolving and evolving. And uh, you were uh, we were talking before, on the air about how groups that people listen to on the impact, how um, the jaz- how jazz might apply towards the music that, that's played on the impact. And you know, um, Alabama Shakes, they've got that that straight up Memphis soul, and those those horn parts. I mean, they are that's the harmonies. Those are jazz harmonies. That's where they that's where they came from. You know, people like Ray LaMontagne and. I think of other people I don't know if Modeski Martin Wood is still popular among the college kids but you know all that stuff. They those guys this is the music they listen to and that inspired them to take the music that's out there right now and, and and make their own.
3: Awesome. Yes, thank you because you know we have a very broad range of listeners here. And so also on that note, besides the music, what else can people do when they come to Summer Solstice?
5: Well, um we're we're always looking for participants on our second line parade and that we have uh Last year, I was expecting about 100 people to show up and about 300 people showed up. And, you know, we encourage people to, you know, get a group of friends or like-minded people or an organization or, you know, fraternal, what, uh, you know, whatever group that you belong to. Mm-hmm. It could be you and your crazy friends. And, you know, uh, dress a little flamboyantly, you know, carry some parasols, wear some uh, Mardi Gras masks. All whatever, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just march behind the New Orleans swamp donkeys to the to, to the festival grounds. Um there's also we have uh if you're if you have children we have a, a kind of we keep adding to our children's area. Um we have uh, um arts and crafts um that uh the the Wharton um schedules and puts together and 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 watches over and helps the kids with. We also have a uh, we have newly uh bro- we brought some kids entertainment in so we'll have a uh, um a lady that's going to be leading some like sing along move along stuff as well as We've got a, a local um, author that wrote a book about jazz for kids. I'm doing a couple readings on that. Um, there's also Harpers and Beggars Banquet extend their patio so you can you know enjoy a libation while listening to the music. Um, I also, I have a kind of a, a secret that I haven't shared. Oh, on Saturday we're going to have flame dancers. Oh, <laughs> uh, jazz and film noir um, influenced. Uh, performance. Okay, by awesome. the Phoenix Rising Academy.
3: And just one last thing on the parade. So the parade you can meet at. You say two at the bro. Okay, yes. so if you um, want to participate it in the starts, parade,
5: the parade starts at two thirty. But you know, get there. Actually, I would get there at one to see Jason Adeshevitz. Ah. And then you can. Uh, um, the people we kind of start lining up about two fifteen, and the the band takes off at two thirty.
3: Cool. So let's say someone is listening, they want to get more information. Where can they go to learn more about this event and perhaps get involved?
5: Um, there's uh, you know, www.eljazzfest.com. We're also on Facebook, if you look for the Summer Solstice Jazz, uh, Jazz Festival on Facebook or Twitter. We're, Twitter, we're uh, at SSJazz.
3: Great. Well, thank <laughs> you for coming in today, Benjamin, and uh, we'll see you at the Jazz Fest. All right, excellent. Coming up, you will hear from Bonnie Jo Campbell. She is an award-winning Michigan author, as well as a past Book Award and National Book Critics Award finalist. Starting June 6th, the UP and Michigan Book Tour is consisting of 30 authors, and it will be making several stops throughout Michigan in different cafes, libraries, and bookstores. I'm on the phone with award-winning author Bonnie Jo Campbell, uh, and she's here to help introduce... The book Here, which is part of like the kind of inspiration for this book tour, it's called Here, and it is the Women Writing on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. So thank you for calling in today, Bonnie.
6: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here.
3: So could you give us a little background information on what Here is and maybe your um, role with it?
6: Well, um, Here is a book put together um, at Michigan State University Press by editor Ron Rickey, who is the state's biggest champion of everything literary in the Upper Peninsula? He's a writer and an editor who is, has made it his mission to highlight all the artists, all the literary artists of the Upper Peninsula, and make sure that we stand up and take note of them. And I'm from the Lower Peninsula of Michigan, but I have been honored to spend time in the Upper Peninsula, and I. I um, took part in a big book tour with Ron Rickey uh, in 2012, and we visited many bookstores and met many Upper Peninsula writers, so I'm beginning to feel like part of the gang, and so I'm really happy to be promoting this book.
3: So to kind of highlight um, here, which is the book that Ron Rickey is promoting, do you mind uh, reading a piece from that book?
6: I would love to and I I don't think I'll read my own from my own piece because it's a it's a short story and I I think I'd like to read um one of the poems from the book that is written by a Native American um native of the upper peninsula and and this poem was probably written in the early 1800s.
3: Okay, great.
6: Um the woman's name she wrote under the name Jane Johnstone Schoolcraft, but her her Native American name was, and I'm going to do my best at this, wawa Gajik Akwai, and this poem is called Here in My Native Inland Sea. Here in my native inland sea, from pain and sickness would I flee. And from its shores and island bright, gather a store of sweet delight. Lone island of the saltless sea, how wide, how sweet, how fresh and free. How all transporting is the view of rocks and skies and waters blue. And all unites in sweetest strains to tell here nature only reigns. On nature, here forever away. Far from the haunts of men away, For here there are no sordid fears, no crimes, no misery, no tears, no pride of wealth, the heart to fill, no laws to treat my people ill. But all it's glorious, free and grand, fresh from the great Creator's hand.
3: Wow, that's wonderful, and that comes from here. Uh, women Writing on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Awesome. Yeah,
6: and it's fun because, you know, we don't read, we tend not to see rhyming poems anymore, but, you know, in the old days, people did write poems mm-hmm. with rhymes, and it's kind of pleasing to hear them. Awesome. And um, would you
3: mind giving us a little background on your on your life story here? I know you've had a pretty interesting uh, life yourself. You grew up in a small farm town in Kalamazoo and then you kind of went to college and sort of traveled around the world with a circus for six months and led adventure tour, bike tours in Russia. Could you explain how your experiences um, after leaving home kind of led you to start writing stories?
6: It, um, I, you know, I grew up in a small town, and I think a lot of us who, who grew up in little towns, especially in rural areas, we felt that the way to take on life was to get the heck out of town and to get away and do some really exciting things. And so I made it a point uh, as soon as I got old enough to run around and to hitchhike. I was hitchhiking even as a youth, which I should not have been doing. (laughs) Um, But I did have lots of opportunities, and I I took every opportunity I could get to um, learn about the world, such as the opportunity to travel with the circus, I was a, I was selling snow cones. I wasn't on the trapeze, but I still got to live on the circus train. And then I I got the opportunity to work on bicycle tours in Eastern Europe with my cousins. And we had a really great time. In It seems crazy being a girl from Comstock, Michigan, to be running tours in Eastern Europe, but that's what we did. And I, I've learned... You know, that there are lots of opportunities out there for people who keep their keep their eyes open and keep their minds and their hearts open. But then the strangest thing happened to me later is that um, I found when I became serious about writing, I didn't want to write about any of those so-called exotic experiences. I wanted to write about life in Michigan and especially about life in life and struggles in small towns and in the countryside in Michigan. And so that is what I spend most of my time thinking about now mm-hmm. <laughs> is is Michigan and Michigan and Michigan's landscape and and the struggles that uh poor and working class people in Michigan face.
3: That's great. And also Bonnie is also known for her best-selling book, Once Upon a River, and that was published in 2011, and it follows a young woman named Margot Crane as she embarks on a harsh, remote, and in some instances, sort of explosive journey to adulthood. And I believe it's also the prequel to your 2002 novel, Q Road, correct?
6: Yeah. Okay. I wrote them in the wrong order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: So, would you mind um, I know you plan to read an excerpt from that, but first, would you mind explaining a bit more about the book to give it some context?
6: Yeah, it's just um, I'm really interested in Michigan's wildlands, and I think that's why I'm particularly interested in the Upper Peninsula, which has more of them than any place in the state um i'm I'm interested in um of course, in preserving wild lands, but I'm interested in the way that human beings interact with them. And I've always been a fan of Huck Finn, of course, as many of us are, uh, our great river adventure story. But I always wish there could be uh, a river story for a female instead of a a boy, if there could be a girl who made her way on the river. So my character, Margot Crane is a girl who's the same age as huck finn and she is forced out to make her way in the world and in particular to make her way on a a river in michigan and so i wanted to create a character who was really at home in nature a character who really um could could possibly even survive in the wild so (laughs) Mm -hmm. that was a really fun adventure and it, it meant that i had to learn how to um forage for food because I had to know what food she would be able to find. And I also had to learn how to shoot (laughs) a gun. That's
3: awesome.
6: she's a shooter. Mm -hmm.
3: Great. So what do you have planned to read for us today?
6: Okay. Well, I'm going to read from the beginning. Okay. It's the easiest part to get. Okay. So this is from chapter one. The Stark River flowed around the Oxbow at Murrayville the way blood flowed through Margot Crane's heart. She rode up To see wood ducks, canvasbacks, and ospreys, and to search for tiger salamanders in the ferns. She drifted downstream to find painted turtles sunning on fallen trees and to count the herons in the heronry beside the Murrayville Cemetery. She tied up her boat and followed shallow feeder streams to collect crayfish, watercress, and tiny wild strawberries. Her feet were toughened against sharp stones and broken glass. When Margot swam, she swallowed minnows alive and felt the stark river move inside her. She waded through serpentine tree roots to grab hold of water snakes and let the river clean the wounds from the non-venomous bites. She sometimes tricked a snapping turtle into clamping its jaws down hard on a branch so she could carry it home to Grandpa Murray. He boiled the meat to make soup and told the children that eating snapping turtle was like eating dinosaur. Margot was the only one the old man would take along when he fished or checked his animal traps because she could sit without speaking for hours in the prow of the river Rose, his small teak boat. Margot learned that when she was tempted to speak or cry out, she should instead be still and watch and listen. The old man called her Sprite, were river nymphs. Her cousins called her Nympho, though not usually within the man or the old man's hearing. Margot named Margaret Louise, and her cousins knew the muddy water and the brisk current, knew the sand and silt between their toes, scooped it into plastic cottage cheese tubs and sherbet buckets, and dribbled it through their fingers to build sagging stalagmites and soggy castles. They hollowed out the riverbanks cut through soil and roots to create collapsing caves and tunnels. If any kid stood too long in a soft spot and sank above his knees, he just had to holler, and somebody pulled him free. They spent summers naked or nearly naked, harvesting nightcrawlers from the mossy woods and frogs' eggs from the goo in underwater snags. They built rafts from driftwood and baling twine. They learned to read upon the surface of the water evidence of distress below. Once, when Margo was eight and her favorite cousin, Junior, was nine, they rescued an uncle who'd fallen in drunk. They all fished the snags at the edges of the river for bluegills, sunfish, and rock bass, though they avoided the area just downstream of the Murray metal fabricating plant, where a drain pipe released a mixture of wastewater, machine oil, and solvents into the river. Some of the fish there had strange tumors bubbled flesh around their lips, a at their gills. On certain windy days, the clay-colored smoke from the shop wafted along the river, reached them on their screen porches, and even when they closed their windows, the smoke entered their houses through floorboards and the gaps around their doors.
3: Wonderful. Thank you. And that comes from Bonnie's novel titled Once Upon a River. If you'd like to catch Bonnie Jo Campbell on this book tour, she will be in the area June 29th in the Literati Bookstore in Ann Arbor and, and July 17th in the Book Bug in Kalamazoo. Thank you so much, Bonnie, and oh, um, I'll be looking up for your books, too. I'm very interested. Okay, I'm if you are interested in learning more about Ron Ricky's book titled here, Women Writing on Michigan's Upper Peninsula, that is launching this book tour, you can visit mscpress.org. Now I sit down with 2015 MSU graduate Derek Blaylock. He, he is making a 6,500-mile bike trip around the U.S. to raise money for a foundation called Tommy's Heart, as well as raise awareness about heart conditions in young athletes. All right, I'm sitting with 2015 MSU graduate Derek Blalock. He um, also gained some fame kind of with the trend of the hashtag Final Four Bike Ride, where he wrote his for 260 miles to Indianapolis to catch the Final Four game but he is here with us today to discuss a new biking adventure he's currently on in memory of a childhood friend so thank you for sitting with me today Derek
2: thank you so much Audrey I definitely appreciate it
3: when did you start this current biking adventure
2: yeah definitely I started uh, May 16th um, 2015 in uh, Charleston South Carolina and uh, I'm biking until August 1st um, and will be ending in Greenville South Carolina Um, biking 6,500 miles um, for a buddy of mine's charity who passed away due to an undiagnosed enlarged heart um, at the age of 17 and his family created a charity um, to help fund free heart screens for youth athletes Um, so that's what I'm raising the money for I just I wanted to do this to kind of delay getting a real job and entering the real world and stuff and um, I also wanted to uh, do this to kind of see the country as well and as well as raise money for a good cause too so.
3: Okay, so I saw on your blog um there's like four port four points or parts of your travel. Where are you now in your four point plan?
2: I'm uh I'm ending basically my the first quarter of my trip um about 1400 miles I think and uh phase 2 kind of will uh start and take me out to Colorado. Um phase 3 will be um, from like L.A. to Dallas, and then the last one will be uh, Dallas to through Nashville to uh, Greenville, South Carolina, where I'll be ending as well. So,
3: right. see, so twenty-three states total that this whole trip covers. How many have you knocked off so far?
2: Uh, let's see: South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, D.C. If you count that, um, New York, Pennsylvania. Ohio and Michigan, so ten so far. Awesome.
3: So, yeah. cool. And so, what day are you today, technically, for your trip? Seventeenth.
2: Seventeenth
3: yeah. day. Awesome. So okay.
2: Today is day seventeen.
3: Yeah. So your seventeenth day here, you've come back to East Lansing yeah. on campus. Why are you here today?
2: Uh, I came here because I spent the last four years here, and um, I felt like I had to, kind of, because I love it here. I love the campus, and. Um, The people I work with just down the hall actually um, at University Advancement were so great for me and stuff and I wanted to see some of them as well. And uh, um, So I decided to hold this balloon launch and inside each balloon um, has a little message saying where uh, people, if they find the message, uh, where they can go online um, to tell like where they're from and uh, check out the story and stuff. Um, that's another way to kind of raise a little awareness while raising some money and uh, um, we also had some uh, goodies out there like t-shirts and stuff to um, raise money and um, so I wanted to come back to Michigan State just uh, because it holds a special place in my heart I guess um, because I absolutely love it here and uh, um, I'm glad I chose this place to go to college because I've met so many great people and Um, it's been a lot of fun, so.
3: Okay, and then what is your goal for this trip? I know you experience it, um, you said that it's to raise money, but like what else are you trying to achieve or show with this trip?
2: Um, I'm kinda doing this um, to show like you can really do anything if you want to. Um, Like I've never been a huge biker, um, but I, I wanted to do this for a good cause and see the country and I think some people don't take the chances that they should when they're younger. Um, like a lot of the a lot of my friends that I know are getting jobs right now and like that's fine and I understand because you pay so much to go to college nowadays and like you want that instant gratification to start being able to pay back student loans and stuff and um, like I'm not this may be a little arrogant but I'm not I'm not worried about getting a job like I I believe I can and stuff so um that's kind of why I wanted to do this as well, so I didn't have any regrets. Um, so, yeah.
3: That's cool. And it's kind of like, do you feel like when you're on these trips, and you have these experiences that you're kind of like bringing Tommy along with you?
2: Yeah, a little bit. And uh, I've definitely shared his story with a lot of people. And um, it's cool to kind of connect with all these people that I've met along the way. And um, this one guy I met, um, he was biking with a group from uh, D.C. to Pittsburgh on the Great Allegheny Passage um, or Passway and they were just doing it as an adventure but I met this guy his name was Scott and um, he was telling me a story about like who he rides for because like everyone kind of like rides for someone or something and uh, he rides for this um, kid who died in an accident with a drunk driver he was riding and uh, he got hit by a drunk driver in south carolina on his bike yeah yep um uh and this kid was um like one step away from making the u.s olympic cycling team so he had a bright future as well and um i guess there's a highway in columbia south carolina named after this kid and um he uh scott he was telling me how he became like best friends with his dad after the fact and the one piece of advice he gave me he said uh don't discount the." kindness of strangers and that has been uh, so true and it's been so it's been so awesome to um have the help and support from people i've literally just met or don't even know um a lot of donations from like people i do know but a lot of strangers i don't so um i definitely appreciate all uh the help i've received so far and um and it was just kind of cool to meet all these people with interesting stories and uh some of them have biked all over the world and um that's that's one thing that's been interesting about my uh ride so far.
3: And exchanging stories how have you personally um like what have you personally done to spread the word on not only the awareness of like Tommy's case in your um foundation but also raising awareness for getting um heart screenings for young athletes.
2: Most people say oh it'll never happen to me or never happened to my kid well that's I'm sure how Tommy and his parents felt and they never had a history with this kind of thing and all of a sudden so uh and we in the mere weeks after he passed there was like three other kids in Michigan alone like West Michigan uh, mid-Michigan alone who passed away so it really touched home like that year and early that year and like it's important to get checked out because you never know if it could happen to you unless you know for a fact that you don't have a defect and um, I know uh, the foundation has caught already 18 defects in youth athletes in just a couple of years and um, the way I think about it is it's not just those 18 but the family members and friends they impact but also the thousands of people they have or they could meet throughout their lives and impact so um, like, if you don't, like, get checked out, then you're depriving those people of those experiences with that person. So, uh, that's why I think it's important to, uh, get checked out and raise awareness about this.
3: Where are you headed to next?
2: We have, uh, several events lined up throughout the way. Um, Colorado will be big. LA will, uh, hopefully have some events as well. Dallas is probably going to be the biggest, um, because one my, he was, uh, slightly older than my brother, and, uh, he lives in he's one of our friends and he lives in Dallas and he hooked us up with some hospitals and some uh, uh local bike shops that have, and have been really helpful. Um so that's gonna be big for us. And um my mom and my brother have been with me the last week and a half. Um but they're leaving uh Monday to uh go back to work basically. But my mom will be uh back following me in a couple of days. Um, just so someone's with me and stuff Um, but there are days where I'm like alone without anyone so um, it's definitely a fun experience because I feel like when I am by myself like I meet some cooler not cooler but uh, some more people because like I have to like actually reach out to other people Mm -hmm. and stuff so um, either way it's been a fun experience and a cool way to spend my summer I guess so
3: and so, someone say someone is listening here. They want to get involved. They want to help donate so you can reach your twenty five thousand dollars goal. Where can they go to keep up with your journey and make donations?
2: Yeah, definitely. You can uh, donate and look at my uh, read my blog at bikefortommyshart dot com. Um, I'm also on Facebook, um, Bike for Tommy's Heart, and I'm also on Twitter and Instagram um, using the hashtag Bike for Tommy's Heart. So um, I'm also on GoFundMe as well. Um, GoFundMe dot uh, slash Bike for Tommy's Heart. So Bike for Tommy's Heart, you should be able to find me. Um, so check us out on Facebook and Twitter and uh, the website as well. So,
3: Great. Thank you, and good luck on your next stop.
2: Thank you so much.
3: For past episodes of Exposure as well as podcasts and articles, go to impact89fm.org. Also, to stay up to date with what's happening at the Impact, you can also find us on Facebook as Impact89FM. Coming up, we have a feature from a while back where reporter Dana Rizal covers the history of a clock repair shop in Traverse City.
1: Time. It's the universal element, the uniting factor in the human condition, and consequently, a subject for pop culture. Time
3: is on my side. Yes, it is.
0: I'm pledging my time.
1: That
0: time. Get this and
1: for a Traverse City clock repairman, time has been his life.
0: Head down the steps at 8 o'clock in the morning and work on clocks and answer the telephone and answer the door for customers that bring, bring clocks to me. And then I take a break and have lunch, and then I work in the afternoon. Dean Bull
1: has been repairing clocks out of his home since 1974 after working as the head of customer service at Colonial of Zealand in the early 1970s. The beginning wasn't very glamorous, forcing Dean to take part-time jobs to support his income.
0: I, I had this thing about making a living, you know, it's more fun than starving to death. I had a, I had a young family at the time, and and frankly, it was, uh, it was difficult. It was a pretty meager existence for the first several years.
1: Dean's work with clocks would soon become a full-time pursuit, dedicating most of his life to his craft. Ever since he first became involved with clocks at Colonial, Dean has kept an observation close to him that explains both the physics and metaphysics behind the bond people create with clocks.
0: When you wind your clock, you're either you're storing your body's energy in the weights or in the mainsprings. And when you hear that clock tick and chime and strike, you get that sound back in the form of, or that energy back in the form of sound. And in the process of making that energy exchange with your clock, there's a fondness that grows. And I can't explain that. That's, that's where the metaphysics begins. And I have had customers in such situations many times. They come to pick up the clock after it's tested out, and big tears will run down their cheeks because that's the first time they've heard that you know, grandmother, grandmother's uh, mantle clock chime since they were a child. And it just they're just overwhelmed with emotion. It, it's, it's a very big deal.
1: Dean's connection with his work goes beyond the gadgets he repairs and with the customers he meets. He shared a story with me about a clock he first repaired in 1982 that ended up being more than just any other repair for one of his customers.
0: When I went back for the second time after, I think, 16 years, um, the woman mentioned to me, she said, how's Mackenzie? And Mackenzie happens to be my daughter, and at that time she would have been six years old, and she went with me for the service call, and this woman loved my daughter. And so 16 years later, I I show up, and she asks how she's doing. Well, I had to bring her up to date on Mackenzie, and then just recently, which uh, would have been, what, 34 years later, 35 years later, from the original service call, um, I serviced the clock again, and again I updated her on the trivia file with Mackenzie. I've seen this woman three times in 35 years but I I can tell you without any question that if you called her up and said something bad about me uh, she would defend me it's just clocks are extremely important to people if you have a talent for fixing them you've got a job
1: it took Dean 20 years to perfect his skills in repairing clocks and with retirement ticking closer and closer in his future He's looking for an heir to his business—someone
0: that has the the integrity, and the desire, and mechanical ability to do it. Because by working with me, I can have him up to speed in five years instead of twenty years. But it's not going to happen quickly. I've done this all alone, basically. Uh, there's been very few times that, that I have been able to tap into. Uh, any kind of knowledge at all from other people because there are just not that many people that repair clocks. And uh, if they, if you do find somebody, they're usually a long ways away and it's difficult to communicate. Um, and so basically I have taught my, how, myself how to do this.
1: As Dean waits for the right person to fill his shoes, he says that there is only one thing that will keep clocks in the lives of future generations.
0: I think that, that the basic idea of clocks being important to people is uh, very basic and I think that will live forever now whether the clocks live forever depends on whether there's young people coming up that are uh, kind of like me
1: for impact news I'm Dana Rizal. So yes I'll go so I'll take that train
3: and ride. Earlier, I interviewed an author about her novel and her involvement in a current Michigan book tour taking place. And now I sit down with another writer on that tour to discuss her poems and her natural sources of inspiration. So I have the pleasure of sitting down today with another author that's on the UP Michigan Book Tour that's stopping through many places in Michigan, highlighting a book put together by Ron Rickey, and it's highlighting the different women's writings in Michigan. It's called Here, Women Writing on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Here I'm with poet and writer Sharmi Karanen. So you are on this tour, so you're going to help kind of promoting this book called Here, Um, What do you plan on sharing on this tour, and what works have you done to contribute to here? Uh,
7: Yeah, thanks so much. Um, I have a poem. It's called Sini, and it's uh, set in the Sini Wildlife Refuge up in the Upper Peninsula. Um, Would you like me to read it? Yes, please. Great. Uh, Sini. It's slow going, waiting for the rock to become a fish, the log a grebe. The eagle's nest hovers naked and known, but who in their bright mind would leave? The SUV to fight the deer flies? One hundred thousand ticks per moose? We used a retractable razor blade to scrape the inspection stickers from each window carefully, safe for another year. Yes, there was a forest fire, a virgin pine burn. Then blue buckets of berries all those following years. The town was skirted like a woman you're dying to surround. Hemingway said the big two hearted was more poetic.
3: Wonderful. And also, um, I know, you've told me that you're not necessarily a Michigan writer but you live in around the South Bend area of Indiana. But what is your
7: connection with Michigan? Sure. I am a a, a Michi, Michi-aner, I guess <laughs> you, you might call it. <laughs> um, I had uh, grown up in the Michiana area uh, around South Bend, and I met my wonderful husband, and his family was from the Keweenaw Peninsula of Michigan. And so when I was a young 19-year-old, I went up to meet his parents for the first time, and had never experienced um, landscape geography climate quite like that. I was used to the cornfields of Michiana, the Amish, um, everything flat, and suddenly uh, there was Lake Superior. It was bluer than I had ever seen the southern parts of Lake Michigan before, um, and wild. It was just so wild, Um, rocky, beautiful beaches, and uh, I just fell in love.
3: And so when around that time did you start writing about the Michigan scenery?
7: Well, I all of this stuff was fermenting. I was uh, raising children and uh, working. I I work as a proofreader of court transcripts. And so I really didn't get into writing about the UP for quite some time, although it was just all kind of coursing around inside of me. And um, it wasn't until I was in my 40s, that I started uh, getting these things down on paper. And it was the geography that just um, wanted to come out. It wanted to come out on paper. I know you plan to bring one of your um, poems or kind of deal with this
3: kind of topic with you today. So what do you have to share with us today?
7: Great, great, great. Nature. And um, I I have another uh, piece of Work that um, is, is nature and also author inspired. Um, a couple of years ago, I was working uh, with a group on some found poetry, and um, each of us took a, a novel that was a Pulitzer Prize winner, and we used that novel as a basis to uh, make our own poems. Some of them were straight erasures, mine was a little bit different. I um, decided that I would take a bill envelope all of us have bills, and use the window in that bill envelope to um, kind of limit my choices. I would p- place the bill envelope on a page and uh, choose words that were uh, focused in that that uh, window. And so then, then I had a set of vocabulary that I could use, and it might take me 15 Uh, pages to come up with a poem, but in that way I kind of interacted with um, the author of So Big, Edna Ferber, um, and uh, took her language and kind of my sensibilities and uh, came up with this poem. It's called May Onions Scratched Through. Rusty red, deprived, something like fright, The spring flowers ache of fatality from being held. The feeling of great adventure. Knead it down. Except you, little animal. That gray rag where ugliness basks. Shade and prisms intend to hang down. Ready for the road to market. Green pain as prosperous for a moment. The lock straining from a night remembered. You. So we see that
3: nature inspires you, but I read that you also have other interests and talents that perhaps may inspire you, like beekeeping. Perhaps would you (laughs) mind speaking on those outside interests you have besides writing?
7: Oh yeah, beekeeping is kind of um, the forefront right now. I am a relatively new beekeeper. This is my third year. I have not gotten my bees to survive a winter yet, but we're working on that and. uh, The fascinating thing about bees is that they force you to be much more observant about nature. And I I thought I was a pretty uh, observant person before then, but um, I work from home. And uh, so I'm able to go out and check my bees, which are in my backyard, um, way too often, Mm -hmm. (laughs) maybe every hour. And uh, so I can see what's going on with them. And by watching what's going on with them, I can see what's going on in the world. Um, What upcoming work do you have? i am working on something just totally fun it's a a mystery novel set in the redwoods of california and um it's kind of inspired by poetry i think that um there's so much poetry out on the redwoods for one thing but um it's a lot more fun there's just uh you know there's a murder happening what's what what can be more fun than a murder That's awesome. Okay. And
3: so just a reminder that if you're interested in Charmy's work, feel free to check her out at Blue Frog Books in Howell. And that is this Saturday, right? This Saturday. In Howell, Michigan from 123. And also author Caitlin Horrocks will be there as well. Um,
7: Thank you for joining us today, Charmy. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Sure. If you are interested in more of my work, um, the poem that I first read is available um, at Amazon. Uh, It's in a book called The Afterlife is a Dry County, and it's available on the Kindle. Awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you. We are ending on a
3: really great note with our segment, Michigan Storytellers, which highlights the stories of local residents. And tonight's story is called Between Friends. It's told by Kadri Wickman, an Oak Miss resident who has had many great experiences while crossing the U.S. and Canadian border.
8: Hello. Uh, my name is Kadri. I am originally from Toronto, Canada, which is, of course, on the northern shore of Lake Ontario, Canada. And now I have lived uh, in the middle of the Great Lakes uh, for the last uh, 30 years. Uh, My husband's originally from New York, and all of our children have been born here. So uh, it's a wonderful, magnificently beautiful place uh, geographically to live a life in. Uh, Some of the stories I'd have to say, having a big family in Toronto, Canada, I have made countless, countless trips driving (laughs) to uh, southern Ontario and Toronto. When the kids were younger, there have been many moments where you think you're crazy. There was one with uh, my uh, older three kids who are now much older, but they were five, three and two. It's hot. We have a Dodge Caravan. Three baby seats, car seats. The youngest uh, were stuck in crawling traffic close to the border. My youngest uh, decides to take all of her clothes off, unbuckle herself from the car seat, and truly jump around the car laughing and giggling like a little monkey. The, I couldn't stop anywhere. It was impossible situation, but the smiles the laughter the 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 hand signals from the truckers and passer-by will i will never ever ever forget uh, that's one of my uh biggest memories the other one uh, i guess that relates also to the friendliness of the borders the border crossing itself How organized, how dignified, how beautiful it is. I usually cross uh, Sarnia to Port Huron. And, of course, major trucking route. It's also the hazmat uh, materials checkpoint, uh, which reminds me, of course, of another story. My mom, older, getting older in Toronto, was coming for a visit. The two of us were driving back home to Michigan, to our area crawling up to where the customs officer asks you questions, the regular, where are you from, where are you coming from, what are you bringing with you, and blah, blah, blah. But we were ticking. He was annoyed when he said, what's in your car, what's ticking? And we were absolutely clueless. But my mom had had um, a sort of a radioactive test uh, in, in the hospital in Toronto earlier and she was the one ticking but they were so friendly we had to drive back and forth and my mom and the customs people are starting to laugh already about but they had to go through the procedures so that was a a funny one then there's my sister's story crossing the border where uh, she's now my sister is coming with my mother from toronto to visit us but they had gone through i think it was mcdonald's to have, once they've crossed the border and they're in the U.S., then they're going to eat their burgers on the on the road. But the border agent asked them, for some reason, you know, you're not supposed to bring in meat, so he asked them, do you have any meat in the car? And, of course, the two of them said, no, but you can smell this wafting burger smell in the car. And, and the, it seems this officer wasn't in the greatest moods, and he said, well, what's between your burger?" And, of course, there's a patty there. So, believe it or not, they had to open up their hamburgers. And the the customs officer, with tweezers, went and pulled the meat patty out of the burgers and let it drop in his little shed there somewhere in the garbage. So, uh, certain moments that you, you can recall. I love crossing the border. Like I said, the friendliest uh longest in history, I think, friendliest border between two nations possible. Uh, uh, Canada considers the U.S. biggest friend and uh, the U.S. is big, but of course, uh, like was it Robin Williams who said it's like a very nice little apartment upstairs is is Canada. Uh, so uh, just to continue a little about the actual road, uh, like I said, it's about 300 miles and Sometimes the trips can get long. And uh, if you're by yourself when the kids were small, you'd start to look at oncoming traffic. And of course, there's so many trucks. But did you know these trucks have faces? They have personalities. They're all different. Some are handsome, young devils, these trucks. They're sleek and shiny. Some are real road warriors, and others look like uh, grumpsters. There is something odd. They are not wanting to do this anymore. Some are small, like uh, typical soldiers, yet others I like kings. So I have thought to myself that, um, uh, well, for a long time, that there are three kings that I like to think about. Then, of course, uh, Elvis Presley is king of rock and roll. <laughs> And uh, in life, uh, cash versus cheques or things. Cash is king. And I've told now my children who are driving that trucks, whatever you call them, semis or uh, uh, tractor trailers or 32-wheelers or whatever, they are king of the road. Don't mess around with them. They have such heavy loads on it. They can't stop for you insect. A, whatever buzzing around there in and out of them they are king of the road trucks are king of the road and often I've uh, tried to keep your mental health too on the long drive sometimes I would begin to and I'm not crazy but think of uh, a trucking company uh, uh, every trucking company with the letter of the al- alphabet. And so I could go through for you right now, A, B, C, you know, Burasa, Challenger Freight and uh, Expedited and Crisca and Thibodeau and McCormick and all of these and their trucking symbols. It's an incredible logistical system of moving uh, product and freight that happens between Michigan and Ontario. I don't know about, you know, uh, British Columbia and Washington or maybe New Brunswick and whatever out east-west, but wow, to Michigan and Ontario. So uh, hats off to this uh, incredible exchange of freight. The friendliness of the border guards, both ways, I have to say. Very nice to deal with you. Everyone is polite, asking where you're going, how was it, and then uh, have a safe trip, I've been told, to hats off. Other than that, I have many, many stories. I love crossing the border. Uh, This area of the world is um, very special. Five huge freshwater lakes and a friendly border with greenery outside your window and lush farmlands uh, from either place. It's a very lovely place to live in the world. So thank you. (laughs) And that concludes
3: our show. A big thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, station manager, Sammy Leonardo, news director, Quinn Hoffman, Matt Frisker for engineering tonight's show, and a big thanks to Ron Ricky for his help this week. I've been your host, Audrey Mateus, and now it's time for Torch and Twang.